Amen. A number of years ago, <clears throat> I ministered, um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe none of you remember it, but remember when I ministered, it's been a lot of years because we had a sabbatical last year, right? Right? It was a Mother's Day, a Mother's Day COVID rest day, I guess it was what it was. Anyway, a number of years ago, I ministered what every, every mom wants their child to know. Does anybody remember that? No one but me? Oh, well, praise the Lord. Um, uh, so I was, Pastor Jerry asked me to um, speak today, this year on Mother's Day, you know, and I thought, well, I'll just pull out that same thing. And that's not what the Spirit of the Lord wanted. And, and um, I thought, well, it's Mother's Day. I've got to minister something about mothers. And he gave me all these elements to talk about. And I thought, that doesn't have much to do with being a mom. And it really doesn't. But he said, you can tell them it's things you learned while being a mom, spiritual stuff. Okay. And so it's not really relative to being a mom, but I learned it while I was a mom. Okay. I'm reaching here. Come on, help me out. I'm reaching to make this a mother's day message. Do you get the point of this? Okay. Praise the Lord. And so if you would, I've got seven different things. I didn't tell the first group how many, and um, they were starting to wonder how many. So I'm telling you right up front, there's seven things I'm going to talk about, okay? And so I will tell you when we move from one to the other, so you can count them down, and then you can um, call for reservations on the restaurant when we get to number six, okay? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Because nobody in here is making mom cook, Right? No, we're not making mom cook today. Absolutely not. Okay, just so we got that clear. And kids are like, okay, what's, what's a phone number for this restaurant? Quick. Anyway, praise the Lord. Okay, go to Hebrews 10 with me. Hallelujah. What do I need to do? Yes, dear. Am I in a crisis? Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. And these are just things I learned to help me spiritually mature while I was a mom. Hallelujah. So Hebrews 10, verse 36, it says, you have need of endurance. Now that would fit in a Mother's Day message, right? You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise you notice that the endurance is needed after you've done the will of God. Now, we like to call on endurance before we've done the will of God, but he says the endurance is necessary once you've done the will of God. You're going to need something to carry you through from the moment of I started it till I got it completed. And the amazing thing about endurance is you don't need it. You don't know if you have it until you need it. But once you need it, you know if you have it. Because if you don't have it when you need it, you're desperate. Right? So this word endurance is also translated often as a word consistent or defined as consistent. And so the first point I want to make, things I've learned to mature me, is whatever is done consistently will become established. Whatever is done consistently will become established in my life. The word endurance, like I said, can mean consistent,
but it also means a continuance, a state of lasting or duration, a lastingness without sinking or yielding to pressure. So I need this attribute of endurance so that I have lasting ability in my life, that I don't sink or yield to pressure. Because what I need to understand, doing the right thing continuously will cause the promise of God to be accomplished. Doing the right thing continuously will cause the promise to be accomplished. If we go over to James chapter 1, in James chapter 1, verse number 4, it says, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This word patience here is the exact same Greek word that we saw in Hebrews 10 as endurance. They're the same word. So we could read this scripture and say, but let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect means maturity. Complete means whole. And lacking nothing means wanting and having no need without remedy. That means I'm not without remedy. I mean, I have an answer. So he says, if you let endurance have its perfect work, you'll be mature, you'll be whole, and you will never be wanting. Hallelujah. That sounds like a fabulous promise. But it says we have to let endurance have its perfect work. So I have here an assignment of a promise, sort of. Actually, what I have here is a block of wood. And if the mandate was the assignment or what I want established is I want this block of wood into two pieces. Now, you can say, well, that's easy. Tim the tool man on the front row here says, let me get my chop saw. Right? But what if all the tools I have is this? Now, you see, I worked on it a lot first service. See that? Okay. It might seem like a task that's enormous, a task too big. But I want to ask you this. If I continued on this, would I eventually get this block of wood cut in half? Eventually it would. But what is it going to take? It's going to take consistently. It's going to be every day doing the same thing, the same way to get it established. Whether it's brushing our teeth, whether it's making our bed, whether it's reading our Bible, whatever it is, if I will do it consistently, it will become established in my life. So if I want something established, what I need to do is approach it with the attitude, let me be consistent in this. Approach it with the attitude, I'm going to have to repeatedly do this in order for it to become stuck in my life, established in my life. Now, it might take more time, but it's possible to get it done. And you know, the way it works with endurance, with consistency, some days you wake up in the morning and think, Yahoo, I get to work on that. And you, ah. And some days you wake up, it's like, 
I'm done. Right? But the key is work on it every day. Work on it consistently. Work on it constantly. Put lastingness to this. Put duration to this. Because from your side, you can't see any change. But the Lord from his side sees a groove has begun. It's working. A difference is being made. And sometimes we see things around us that give us no indication that we're having an effect. No indication that we're making a difference. But yet the Lord from his side is kind of dangerous waving a knife up here. You know what I mean? I might trim my hair while I'm at it. Um, From the Lord's side, he sees that something is working. He sees that you're making a difference. He sees that your consistency is getting something established in your life. So it's going to take consistency in order to get establishment. Amen? We have to understand that quitting is the greatest enemy of our victory. Quitting is the greatest enemy of our victory. And many things... Many things that are worth achieving are not instant. You know, if, um, if I had a chainsaw and cut this block in half, it would do the job, but it'd be likely that I could get slivers off the middle of it, right? Because a chainsaw is rough, okay? If I had a butter knife working on this, it would make it extremely smooth and take more time. You have to understand, sometimes you get a mandate from the Lord to accomplish something and you feel like your tools aren't right, but your tools are for the lasting impression, not the immediate impression. Amen? Because like I said, the butter knife might take longer, but I'd never get slivers off of it if I cut it with a butter knife. It'd just take me a long time. Hallelujah. So understand that when God gives you tools or promises, or declarations. It's for the long-term investment to be perfectly established that he's interested in. Amen? Hallelujah. So the first thing is, whatever is done consistently becomes established. The second one, let's go over to um, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 7, and it says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. The second thing is, I cannot give in to fear. I cannot give in to fear. God has never given anyone ever on the planet fear. He has never invoked fear. Fear is a tactic of the enemy. We have to understand this, that fear is a hard taskmaster, but it is addictive in nature because we get addicted to worry. We get addicted to stress. We get addicted to concern. We can get addicted to all these things. And when you get down to it, The foundation of all of them is fear. Because it's always got a what if. If I don't, I wonder if I should have. Could I? 
all of these things, and they're fear-based. And fear is truly a tactic of the enemy. Many people are so accustomed to a certain type of fear in their life that they no longer even recognize that it's fear. So many people get so accustomed to worry over something, get accustomed to stress over something, get accustomed to concern over something that they're not even aware that they're operating in fear. That we aren't distinguishing. That's fear. It's really just fear. I'm afraid. What if they do this? I'm afraid. What if this happens? But we have to understand that fear is a bondage of the enemy. Let's go over to Hebrews 2. I'm trying to go faster because I was too long in the last service. So I can't quite talk as fast as David Barton, but I sure could give it a shot if you want me to do Okay, in verse 14 of Hebrews 2, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, so we know who we're talking about, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Subject to bondage, meaning bound to this slavery that's authored by the enemy. And he says, I don't want you bound to this slavery. So if I could put it this way, bring some clarity. When you're operating in fear in your life, it's like you've put a hook in your heart. And what this hook does, it becomes a handle for the devil. See, because when you've got fear, all your lifetime, you're subject to bondage. So what the devil does when you're afraid, he has a handle to lead you and guide you where he wants you to go. He becomes the proprietor of you. He becomes the possessor of your life. And so we don't want to give the enemy a hook or a handle. You know, 1 John 4, if you can flip over to that one real quickly. 1 John 4 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. So what we see here is if you have fear, you're going to have torment. If something is tormenting you, it's because fear is present. But according to this scripture, if fear is present, love is absent. So if fear is present and love is absent, that tells me the enemy is present and God is absent because God is love. So what we have to do is work at and analyze in our life. Is this fear based? Because if I'm in fear about this, I have given a handle to the enemy. I am separated from God and I got to get rid of this fear so that I can be directed by God in the affairs of this life. Amen. Because fear becomes that handle and it becomes a magnet to demonic encounters in my life. Okay, so the first one is whatever I do consistently becomes established and I must keep my life out of fear. All right? 
We're doing fast. We're doing good. Okay, real good. All right, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Hallelujah. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Now, this is when um, Samuel is to be anointing a new king for Israel. And he said, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we all like that confirmation, the fact that God's looking at our heart. We like that. There's a comfort in that, that God is looking at the heart. And I agree with that. God looks at the heart, and we can take great comfort in the fact that God's looking at the heart. But we forget the other part. Man's looking at the outward appearance. Hallelujah. And we cannot be forgetful of the fact that people are looking on the outside of us. All right? And sometimes it takes a while for people to see our heart because they only see by the outside. Amen? If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.22, and it tells us in the old King James, here is in the new King James, abstain from every form of evil. But the old King James says, abstain from every appearance of evil. Now, I'm not here to propagate hypocrisy or haughtiness or arrogance. What I'm telling you is we have to be willing to give people mercy if they don't know our heart yet. If they don't know our heart yet. Because man only looks on the outside because that's all man can see. That's all people can see. All they can see is the outside. So don't be upset if they're not interpreting what you've got going on on the inside. All they can see is the outside. All they can see is your actions. All they can see is your responses. You know, this is the way uh, you can say it. Don't do something shocking and be angry that others stare. Right? Don't do something shocking and then be bummed because somebody's looking at me. Well, of course they're looking at you. You've done something shocking. Everybody likes to look at shocking things. Right? How many people follow a fire truck? You understand what I mean? But we have to be willing in life to give mercy to people when they are looking on the outside. We have to understand that's all they can see. You know, and the fact that people judge us by the outside, understand they're going to because that's all they can see. That's all they can see. I am not endorsing hypocrisy, okay? But we need to understand people only see you from the outside. They don't see you from the inside, especially people of the world. So we have to be willing, you know, that when we come forward and say, I've changed. I'm completely different right now. And people's like say, okay, let's walk along or prove that. We can't, be, we can't be upset because it will show in time. But don't get bummed that not everybody makes that immediate transition with you. You know, it's going to take some time. And you just coming to me and say, I've changed. I'm completely different. I used to steal, kill, and destroy, but now I don't, so let me take up the offering. It may take a while for me to adjust to that thought, okay? So be willing to allow people time to discover you. How many of you remember these things? 
Remember the owl on the TV? Okay. How many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll pot? One, two, right? I don't remember how many it was exactly. But see, on the outside, on the outside, this is hard. But when I go and I start, it gets soft. And then the real treat was not just the hard, but the real treat was what was inside here. Do you remember the ones when they came out? They were called charms, and they had bubble gum in the middle. Wow, that was awesome, wasn't it? For somebody that's not really addicted to chocolate, the charms was really good. Anyway, but the treat was what was on the inside. And God is saying, I know what you are like on the outside, but I know you, the real you, the best part of you is the part nobody else sees. But understand, they can't see that best part of you yet. But if you will, this, this, I, I hate to use this phrase, but if you'll just let them, <laughs> eventually, they're going to get down to seeing the real you. Because we'll soften you, and they'll get to you. They'll get to the real you, right? So you have to learn to allow people to just discover who you really are. Now, please don't get me in any trouble with YouTube videos on that. Okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We live in an age of social media, video phones, and hidden cameras. Everybody wants to look at your actions on the outside. And a lot of times, the actions on the outside don't really convey what was going in the heart at the moment, especially when they can edit it. Okay, so we need to understand that we need to abstain from evil appearance because they are looking on the outside. Amen. Hallelujah. So whatever we do consistently is established. Stay away from fear and understand that man looks on the outward. The next one, we're going to go to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven in verse one, it says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Look at that. It says, judge not. You don't be judged. Judgment you judge, you'll judge. And a whole lot of judging. And a lot of times we think of judgment as passing a sentence. But I want to give you a definition of judgment. Judgment here means to pass judgment. But it means to have an opinion or make a determination on the deeds and words of others universally and without case, to pronounce an opinion concerning right or wrong. See, judgment isn't the kind of judgment that God invokes of right and wrong. This kind of judgment he's talking about is having an opinion about. To have an opinion about. Well, you know, I, I don't really do that, but yet it comes down to this thing of even criticizing. And we have to understand that according to this scripture, whatever measure we use, it's going to be measured back to us. I've seen it constantly that someone will criticize someone else about something, how their, what their kids are doing, how they're spending their money, what this or what's that. And it will be just a matter of time that they will be walking through the exact same dilemma in their own life. 
Because you cannot criticize without criticism coming back on you. You cannot form an opinion about a crisis without that crisis coming back on you. It's better to just be clear that I look at my own life and my own life only. Because there is a principle at work in the earth. Whatever seeds you sow is the harvest you're going to get. There is no way around that. God commanded that principle from the garden, and there's no way we can get around it. Whatever measure we judge with is going to be measured back to us. In this passage of Scripture, it goes on to talk about, remember, I can see the speck in your eye and don't even know there's a plank in my eye? Well, it's interesting because if I'm looking for a speck or I can see a speck, it means I've had to study and look intently. If I walked up to you and had a conversation, I may not see the speck. But I have analyzed you to find a speck. And the key is when you're fault finding, you're always going to find what you're looking for. You're always going to find what you're looking for. And he's talking about you're looking for the speck and you see the speck. You see the problem in somebody else's life. And we may not say, oh, I see that. But we use words like, if I were them, I wouldn't have. If I were them, I would have. You know, these are all criticisms and opinions based on what they've done or didn't do. And that will come back. That will come back. And so maybe instead of being an analyzer of specs, Maybe instead we need this piece of looking glass and find the plank. And find the plank. Instead of looking, be the speck inspector, maybe we should be the plank locator. Okay? Because if I quit doing this and I start doing this, then my words are seasoned with grace and I'm communicating with you. Then what I can do is I can cause this. But as long as I'm doing this, you don't really care what I can find. How many of you want your life to come under thorough investigation? No way. Nobody wants that. So let's not sow that. Let's not be speculators, okay? <laughs> Hallelujah. Always know that fault finding is not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of immaturity. Because Jesus is willing to overlook. Amen? All right, let's move on to the next thing. Matthew 16, 26. We're going faster, aren't we, babe? Okay. Hallelujah. So it says in verse 26, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The next thing I want to say is this. We must always be holding to things of eternal value. We almost always need to be, have the concept of eternal value. What's good for eternity. Now, this scripture here gained the whole world. And I wasn't sure what the world meant. So I looked up this de definition. It's kind of lengthy, but I'll read it to you. World in this passage of scripture indicates the aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, 
advantages and pleasures. That's a lot of stuff. The whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, and pleasures, which although hollow and frail and fleeting, will stir desire, seduce from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So he says, you can get all this stuff that are endowments, riches, pleasures, advantages, and they're all going to be wonderful. But don't forget, they're frail and fleeting, and they're apt to stir a desire to separate you from God. And what advantage is it if I gain a bunch of stuff that's going to separate me from God? See, I have to keep eternal value in mind. I have to keep a connection to things that have eternal weight. And the way sometimes we do it is we look in here, get filled up, but our life becomes a yo-yo. We get filled up and then we got to go out here to the workplace, the world, and then we put out what we've gotten in. Then we rush back and we get it filled up again and get ourselves tanked again. And we go out here and get it depleted again. And so we go back and forth and back and forth until one day we're tired of going back and forth. So we just stay fixed out here. Now we're depleted, and now we're even absent the strength to get back there. It's because I stayed too long out here with getting out, getting refilled by things of eternal value. Hallelujah. And then the longer I stay out here, the harder it is for me to get back there. But until I get back here, I am not refueled again in order to... Um, Stay true to um, eternal things. Let's look at, is it 2 Corinthians 5? 2 Corinthians 5.10. And this is a scripture that helps us to know this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now this is sentencing judgment. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And sometimes what we do is we forget the eternal benefit because of the immediate crisis. We forget that what I do has eternal weight. And so I look for what will pacify the here and now. But we have to value the eternal. Okay, this might be profound. But how many of you know you're going to live longer in eternity than you live on the earth. Okay? So what we want is to use our earthly life just to position us for the eternal life. We want to use our now for what will be for eternity. We want to do what's now that's going to position us in a place of eternity. Don't get me wrong. There's no places in eternity that are bad. But you want to fulfill that place of eternal value instead of always just looking at the momentary fleeting thing. Amen? All right. So that was number five. We're on to number six. Hallelujah. Number six is this. Always be teachable as a disciple of the Lord. In Matthew 4, we see the account of Jesus being to assemble his 12. And he calls Peter and Andrew. He calls James and John. And when he calls them, it says they left their nets and they 
followed him or they left their father. They followed him. Notice this, that these ones were, were commissioned and called to a specific task to, to always be with the Lord. Now, in that, there were a lot of believers in Christ through the whole time he was on the earth. The whole time he was on the he fed 5,000 men at one time, right? Another time he fed 4,000. We don't even know if it's the same 5,000, 4,000. We know that he had an impact. And there was many that believed in him. But not everybody left something and became a disciple of his. There is a big difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Many of us have thought that being a disciple just meant a student. But let's look over into Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. Because a, a, uh, a disciple is much more than just a believer. And he says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So a disciple is not just somebody that hears about the Lord, not just somebody that believes in the Lord, but someone that is observing to do all the things that he commanded them to do. See, a believer can be someone that knows God, but a disciple is one that's endeavoring to become like God. Okay? A disciple knows what God is doing before he does it. A believer, when something is done, knows it was God that did it. But a disciple knows before it's done what God is doing. And a believer only knows it's God when it happens. Because a disciple will have a deeper commitment to the things of God. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they left something behind in order to become a disciple. And if we are going to be disciples, that means we're going to have to allow the Lord to penetrate our heart. That we don't just do a spiritual routine, but we are willing to sit before the Lord until his hand can go in our heart and rearrange and change something that we have what's called a changed life. That it changes our life. If following God never changes anything in your life, then probably you're not a disciple. You're probably just a believer because a disciple always has their life changed by the master. Do you remember this? Okay, I'm going to date myself. Snatch the pebble from my hand. A few. Do you understand this? Padawan. Do you understand that one? Okay. Now I know I'm older than most of you in this room. You didn't grow up on Kung Fu. But the idea was to get the student to be as good as the master and what he was enforcing or teaching. And God wants to get us to the place that greater than these will you do because I go to the Father. He's wanting us to be disciples. And this is the best way I can explain this. Now, I'm going to show you this. And all I'm going to tell you is we had a little bit of crisis in the first service, and you'll totally understand why. Okay? So, so when you're a disciple, I don't know how to work these, and I'm blessed. 
When, when you're a disciple, it means that you chain yourself to Christ. You chain yourself to the Lord. That this is who I'm connected to. This is who I'm connected to. Because what he knows is greater than my philosophy. The way he has is greater than what experience has taught me. The reasoning he has is greater than all my greatest thoughts. There has never been a person that walked the earth that had a more fulfilled, successful, joy-filled life than Jesus Christ. Never. Okay? So we would do well to link ourselves to the master and let him disciple us. Let him teach us in the way we should go. Let him direct us and guide us wherever we have to go. Because what happens, we try to do this life without him, and then we end up miserable, can't figure why things are falling apart. It's devastating. It's because the connection to him is where real success is. It's where the real delight is. And the more we can be connected to him, the more disciplined we become and the greater our life is. Lose this mentality that he doesn't know and he doesn't care. Lose that mentality that God doesn't know what's going on here. Lose that mentality. He knew about it before you got to it. And lose the mentality he doesn't care. He gave absolutely everything he had for your life. So to say he doesn't care is a slap in his face. Lose that mentality. Instead, chain yourself to him for his purposes and plans. The best way to say it is this. No longer can we create a God we want to serve, but we need to serve a God who created us. We can't create a God we want to serve. We have to serve of the God that created us. Amen? One more. The best and the greatest. And I went, oh, look at that. I'm, last time I preached the rest of the week, the rest of the day with those on. Philippians 4.4. 4. Hallelujah. This is probably one of the key things. These are things that will take you to maturity in the Lord. Right here, Philippians 4.4, 4, very short passage of scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Hallelujah. And we have to keep this in mind that whatever we're going through now, it will pass. Whatever it looks like right now is not eternal because I can see it with my eyes. And to know this, that to God, everything is small. Don't make a little thing a big thing. To God, everything is small. Every crisis, every trouble, it's a little deal. And sometimes we have to endure because it's really a small thing. Amen? If we look at Matthew 21, 16, this is Jesus talking. And in this particular passage of Scripture, he says, Have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Now, he is quoting something from the Old Testament. And he's quoting out of Psalms 8. And in Psalms 8, it says, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. 
They called it praise in the New Testament. Here he calls it strength. And he says, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. We need to know that rejoicing and praise will always silence the enemy. When there's a torment going on in your head, when there's a crisis going around you, you need to rejoice. Why? Because it'll silence that thing. When there's a pull on your heart to walk away from God, when there's a pull on your heart to do something you know you shouldn't do, start rejoicing and say, I bless the Lord. And when you start blessing the Lord, it's hard to do the devil's work. It's hard to think the devil's thoughts when you're singing and rejoicing and praising God. And you don't have to sing. I sing, never should record, but sometimes I sing. But a lot of times I just say it, bless the Lord. I um, shared a testimony um, in the first service that one time I was called upon to cater a banquet. And we had the um, main entree was in the car. We were driving and um, we were driving. And then there was a car that did something in front of us. So we had to swerve and turn. And um, I heard in the back end, everything went over. What are you going to do? And I looked at Jerry, he looked at me, and I said, and I rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I don't know if angels were back there cleaning it up and fixing it, because we could smell it in the car. We knew it was what had happened, but it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been. Because when you rejoice, at least I got there without panic the whole time, right? You rejoice in the Lord, it causes the enemy's voice to subside in your life. And understand this, there is no depression that rejoicing won't break. There is no self-pity that rejoicing won't triumph. Because self-pity is when you get to the place, you're thinking about yourself, you're inviting other people to come and pity you so that you could have a pity party, but it'd be so much better in the Lord if you just rejoice. And sometimes we need to know how to make things light and fluffy. You know, these are bubbles. In fact, these are called super miracle bubbles. Now, you know, for years I did youth and things and children's ministry, and we've been to different places where things can be heavy. But when somebody, aww, it just blows bubbles. And it makes everybody happy. It makes every, I think that next to a paddle spoon, maybe you need super miracle bubbles, mom. Make it light. Make it light hearted. You know, the shoe that doesn't get tied because they don't know how and they're falling apart isn't going to matter when they're 16. So let's just make light of it. Let's rejoice in it now. And you can't just badger them and belittle them. You've got to do something to pick up the atmosphere. You've got to do something to lighten the atmosphere. And the best way to do that is to rejoice, to lift it up, pick it up. There's lots of weighty, heavy things out there. There's no doubt about it. Lots of weighty, heavy things. But what you have to do, let's find a way to lighten this load right now. Let's rejoice and let's be glad in God. Let's lighten this right now because the enemy's tactic is to weigh us all down. And we need to find a way just to rejoice. 
Hallelujah. Amen. So with that being said, the seven things I've learned for, that brought us to maturity is whatever is done consistently becomes established. Never give place to fear. Man will look on the outward appearance, but I will not judge. And I will hold to the things of eternal value and be teachable as a disciple, and I will rejoice always. Now, every one of them could have been a sermon in itself. So look at that. We did a seven-week series today. <laughs> Hallelujah. Why don't you all stand at your feet? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to watch the video of this message, head over to vimeo.com forward slash victory or go to Jerry Roberts Ministry on Roku. For more information about who we are and what we do here at Word of Victory, check out the website at wovictory.org. That's wovictory.org. See you there.